broadcasting from Dublin, Ireland, and around the world on TalkingBrawlsMMA.com. You're listening to Off The Brawl Podcast, presented by TalkingBrawlsMMA.com. Today I have Jordan Breen from ShareDog.com with me um, to discuss the MMA landscape at large outside of uh, the, the UFC and looking at uh, more non-UFC non MMA related uh, topics. Uh, well, Jordan, uh, first of all, thanks for joining us on the podcast today. How are things for you? Uh, things are good. I'm a little uh, under the weather. It's getting into the, the blustery winter of Toronto and stuff like that, so I'm slightly sick. But apart from that, it's all good. You know, I suppose mainstream MMA, North American MMA anyway, uh, obviously it, it keeps being talked over is, is the UFC, um, you know, oversaturization of the sport. Um, just a quick, uh, to start off, just to get your take, how how much do you think it's changed over the last few years of what it means to be a UFC level fighter? Oh, well, I mean, it was it was already changing. I mean, far far before the last two or three years. In the last two or three years, it's come to almost be a, a punchline. The the extent to which a guy who isn't particularly a world class fighter can be a UFC veteran. But I think even if you look, you know, five six years ago, you can already start to see the UFC just having to fill cards in some particular capacities, late replacements. That's and guys coming off of the ultimate fighter and getting a few, you know, uh courtesy fights in the UFC. That's part of the mechanism where you start to get particularly awful UFC veterans. Mm -hmm. But it's really exacerbated. But it even if it's exacerbated in the last two years or so, it's not like all of the Junie Brownings of the world have only come to bear in the last two years. UFC veteran has been a phrase worth snickering about for quite some time. And that's fine to some extent. Uh, it's, it's fine when, you know, it's, we understand, for instance, why someone like Kimbo or James Tony gets to call themselves a UFC veteran. We kind of can wrap our head around it. But a lot of people bristle at simply anonymous fighters they've never even heard of. Like, what? This guy's fought in the UFC five times? Like, what? The fact of the matter is uh, there have been a lot of curious UFC vets for quite some time now. It's just a, it's a different kind of one now, and there's a lot more of them. Certainly, UFC caliber fighter is a virtually meaningless phrase at this point in time. Yeah, I mean, uh, do you think though for a regional show, um, you know, whether it be North American such as RFA or even internationally like Cage Warriors, do you think the promoters of those shows uh, put really any stock in that, uh, you know, that you know title anymore in terms of getting guys to headline their own events? Well, I think with Cage Warriors is a different kind of situation because Cage Warriors right now are in a position where they don't really want to be a feeder show anymore. Mm. They're sick of having every guy who wins a title obviously get promoted to the UFC ASAP because, frankly, one of the reasons it happens is that Cage Warriors for years have done a really, really good job at fostering, promoting, and developing talent all over Europe. So by the time a guy gets to a Cage Warriors title, never mind the fact if he's fighting Cage Warriors, 
decent chance that he's from some kind of country that's of European promotional value to the UFC. Uh, that those are those are guys that want to snap up very very quickly. And Cage Warriors are kind of sick of it. With RFA, uh, they just try to you know, as far as RFA goes. Ed Soares and George Gamerant trying to get as many of their own guys on the cards as humanly possible. Use other retreads where necessary, favors to other managers, and just run it as a straight feeder show. But really, it's uh, it's pretty much just to, like RFA is pretty much designed to not just get guys to the UFC as fast as possible, but also give guys comfortable bounce backs from the UFC. It really is, in its in its very DNA at this point, subservient to the UFC in this way. Cage Warriors want to move away from that direction entirely and somehow find a way to retain their own talent. I wish them all the best in doing so. I think it'll be an uphill battle, but mm-hmm. um, at least in the regional scene even, I mean, there's some people that, that don't mind at all being a theater show to the UFC and have found their niche doing so. And there's other promotions out there that clearly, at least even if they're maybe appreciative of the fact that their talent goes on to bigger and better things, want something different for their product. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, you know, we I'm sure we can all uh, laugh at this to some degree, but um, I'm so used to hearing even from many flagship MMA websites, you know, um, whether it be the MMA fighting.coms, either the sharedog.coms, it, it's quite apparent where, you know, we listen to MMA podcasts, um, radio networks, you know, laugh or roll their eyes at, you know, how dissatisfied they are with, you know, the, the status quo fight nights or, you know, um, you know, the lackluster cards and whatnot. Do you think, uh, in all honesty, um, there still is, you know, enough non-UFC MMA out there to, uh, that, that's actually worth watching? Yeah, of course. It's just a, it, it depends on how much you think there should be or how much you want. You know what I mean? Mm. Uh, the UFC at one time, you know, now you're talking about over 500 fighters on roster, mm. and that's an enormous amount of fighters. There was a time where the UFC across, you know, four or five divisions had you know, 150 or something like that. And at a time like that, that's 250 other fighters that are out there on the market doing their thing, applying their trade, working for different promoters. Mm-hmm. So there's way less talent out there to be had, but there's still ways to create some sort of realm where people want to watch your product. Maybe you are basically an explicit feeder show like RFA. Mm-hmm. And that's the joy of it. RFA, you know you're at least going to get guys that are on the cusp of the UFC and that you might see in the UFC shortly or saw in the UFC recently. So it's an, it's an, easy, uh, it's an easy narrative to understand. You might not watch every single RFA event, but you kind of understand what the stakes are. Promotions like Ring of Combat, Legacy FC, they've done good jobs at not basically saying we're feeder shows – but concentrating their efforts in areas in the states where they bring up talent in talent-rich areas, and those fighters are able to quickly go on to the UFC. There's a value in watching stuff like that, even if maybe every single legacy card doesn't call for you to stay home on a Friday night and watch Access TV or something like that. So it's it's certainly out there. It's replete. The question is, like, what do you like? What do you feel a Cage Warriors headliner should look like, or a Legacy headliner? But there's ways to generate interest. Uh, Legacy is actually a really good example because Legacy has made great use recently of a lot of jujitsu converts. Uh, Robert Drysdale got his start there uh, when he, you know, dipped his toes in the MMA water. Uh, Rafael Lovato Jr. Uh, Michelle Nicolini on the women's side. They've done a really 
a fantastic job at focusing on Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu converts and world-class ones coming into mixed martial arts, which is far more potent than just two average amateur or, or pro fighters going at it trying to sell tickets locally. So uh, there's, a whole, there's a whole lot of different ways to skin a cat uh, and, and make money from being a regional show. Uh, but as a viewer, uh, there's, I mean, it, it depends on what you want to see. If you want to see UFC retreads, UFC, UFC caliber talent and the like, uh, they're all they're out there. It's to be had, but uh, you you just got to do more sifting now. It's not it's not a one stop shop. There were times where certain regional promotions uh, would be able to put on shows that you know were like like historically. You look at something like the IFC Global Domination Tournament. The idea that like a promotion could just come out of nowhere, uh, a, like a regional promotion decide to stage something of that caliber now is unlikely. You know, something like Battlegrounds best approximates it, and Battlegrounds was nowhere even close. But these things crop up from time to time. If you want to actually, you know, put in the effort to identify, you know, what what a good prospect in Brazil looks like and what a good jungle fight is, you can find the stream and rock it live. It's there for you. Mm-hmm. So there's as much international MMA as you want to watch. It's just I would say now the UFC has picked the bones clean to a, a point where the very best are in the UFC or at least Bellator World Series, 1FC. And when you're watching regional shows, you're going to be watching retreads. You're going to be, or like keeping your eyes open for hidden gems or guys that could be in the UFC, girls that could be in the UFC 12 to 18 months from now. Yeah, and I mean, you know, you mentioned streams and obviously Sheridog has, has gotten on board with, you know, uh, you know promotions like RFA or Tachi, uh, Tachi Palace Fighting Championships you know, uh, streaming their events live and whatnot. And, um, you know, you, you often hear even on those shows, guys that are coming up through the ranks who, you know, perhaps even should have gotten into the UFC already and people wondering why they're still, why they're still fighting on the regionals and so, so whatnot. But, I mean, for, for your money and from the way you look at it, I mean, why do you think, you know, more established, you know, MMA websites are not, you know, covering some of these promotions also? Well, I mean, it's like, how is it going to get done? The other thing that people real, don't really realize, too, is that um, if you run an MMA website, uh, especially one that is a major MMA website, like if you run, for instance, a, a website that focuses on European mixed martial, arts, mixed martial arts, it's a lot easier to say, like, cover Cage Warriors and do it very intensely. But if, say, for Sure Dog's purposes, if, you know, we do some regional stuff, and you know, run a report uh, like like play by plays of regional events do pretty well for for sure dog. Uh, and and I want to say it won't. It doesn't matter what promotion it is. It does. But people, for the most part, where like the way people consume their media now, if you just do like a report, like eight hundred word style report on a regional mixed martial arts show that took place, even if it was fantastic. It's going to do like a couple thousand reads on a major mixed martial arts site, something like Sherdog or Junkie or MMA Fighting. Uh, you have to find ways to be creative and get that content out there. Also, there's a limited amount of space that you can have on a particular website. It depends on how your site's laid out. But take a site like MMA Junkie, for instance. You know, it's got the blog style format. Uh, you can't just if it's a big weekend. And there's like two UFC events. That's your bread and butter. That's what people click on. That's what that's what creates a website. That's mm-hmm. what creates an infrastructure where you get paid for advertising 
and where whoever your parent company is can sell that kind of inventory on your website and you can pay writers and people can make a living and do this to a high degree uh, for you know for a living uh, and you can't you, you know you can't eschew that coverage in favor of something which is not going to be read by enough people to make it worth the while. Uh, the other thing too is like the UFC itself cannibalizes coverage of other regional shows. Uh, you know, just from a planning perspective, if there's you know a UFC weekend where there's two shows or something like that over 24 or 48 hours, whatever the case might be, uh, I can't. It, it's much harder to, to physically send people to those particular shows to actually cover them. You know, people can only be in one place at one time. And uh, if there's anything else going on that weekend, it, it kind of hurts. I, I, I think uh, the last, whatever the last UFC doubleheader day was, whatever, uh, I think the Australia card, uh, which dovetailed with another card the next night, uh, that, uh, oh, the Brazil card, the yeah. Shogun card. So those two cards together. Um, I think the same weekend, there was like a KSW show. KSW, arguably the best show in Europe, certainly a fun watch for the bizarre theatrics that go on, if absolutely nothing else. And admittedly, it wasn't as good as some of their cards, not as good as the, the one coming up. It didn't have you know, the spectacle of Pujanowski or the sporting relevance of Mom and Hallie Dove. But uh, typically, KSW would be able to get some play on a site like Sherdog, but it was very, very hard to work in legitimate KSW coverage over the period because there's two UFCs and uh, a bunch of other stuff. Uh, a weekend like the the one past where you have uh, like Metamorris going on at the the same time as Manny Pacquiao and all that particular night where you have like the UFC and Bellator and World Series of Fighting. Uh, when when things are if not simultaneous, then over the same weekends and disparate locations, websites can only you know. Uh, cover these things so well. There's actual a limited amount of space, like resources, space in terms of a website, how viable that space is in terms of getting it read, and actually having people in position to create that sort of content. It's hard covering mixed martial arts, logistically speaking, for cheap, especially with the UFC where they go all over the world all the time now, and that ultimately is the most magnetic material. People want to hear about fighters that are in the UFC. Yeah, and you mentioned KSW there. Would you, in your opinion, would you put KSW ahead of Cage Warriors in the pecking order in Europe? Uh, I think it depends on what you want. You know, I'll put it this way a, a great KSW card is going to beat a great Cage Warriors card because a great KSW card is going to probably have a good mix of good fighters, insane stuff like Chechnyan dudes throwing spinning hook kicks, rolling knee bars, you know, Christoph Kuwak's going to come out in a tank or an ambulance like Hannibal Lecter and the mask on the gurney. A great Cage Warriors card, you're just going to be like, oh, wow, like these are a lot of really good fighters. I can't wait to see some of them in the UFC. That's great. But the theatrics of KSW hit you in the heart. But I would say on average, uh, in all seriousness, um, if if – the number one goal of an MMA promotion is know your niche and ultimately still try to put on the best competitive, well-made fights that locals want to see and that still speak to regional and international level MMA. Can't do better than Cage Warriors. Yeah, I mean, that, that's interesting what you mentioned about theatrics. It serves as a, as a good segue to my next question, actually. Um, you know, 
when you think of, I suppose, MMA, like just from the sporting aspect of it, you know, we often get into these discussions on the outside MMA promotions or regional or international promotions on, you know, is this promotion, you know, a feeder league or is this promotion, uh, you know, long-term viably, uh, viable to be a competitor to the big shows and whatnot. But, I mean, um, you know, you interjected something there already about, you know, the, the theatrics, the entertainment side of things. I mean, would, 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 would we be limited to saying that that's the three categories that, you know, any non-UFC MMA show can fit into. You're either a feeder league to the UFC, either, you know, oh, you know overtly or uh, discreetly, or, um, you know, you're looking to be, you know, a competitor down the road, or, you know, thirdly, um, you're just looking to find your own little niche, like some kind of entertainment presentation. Uh, I don't know. I think, I think you got to keep in mind, too, that some of those priorities change over time as well. I mean, look at something historically like Strikeforce, Scott Coker was someone who, even after Strikeforce blew up, even after they acquired the Elite XE assets and were able to get money from Silicon Valley Sport Entertainment, uh, I don't. I, and I, I guess it, it seems silly to say now with them invested in Bellator, but Scott Coker was someone that I think, even if he's excited to promote big shows and stuff like that, he's someone that, in, in large measure, I think is still happy and would be happy if he could promote regular kickboxing or martial arts shows in San Jose or in California. Mm -hmm. Scott Coker's a guy that, that still loves the martial arts, likes to see guys go out there and duke it out, and likes putting on a show for people and getting to show that off. Like He's got a very essential promoter spirit. So a guy like Coker, when he started Strikeforce, it was just a kickboxing promotion. And then obviously, you know, he thought, you know, Kung Lee wanted to do some MMA. He had a relationship with Frank Shamrock and the guys from AKA and the like. And they thought, all right, well, let's do Kung Lee and Frank Shamrock. And Strikeforce took off as an MMA promotion. And just little by little, they gained ground. And then he was put in a position where he made the jump, obviously, and Strikeforce became a really direct UFC competitor. But Scott Coker was still very happy doing that stuff before. He was someone that was thrust in that position and didn't necessarily have the dream, I'm going to compete with the UFC. Because even though the UFC post-Strikeforce buyout, a lot of people in Zufa aren't the biggest Scott Coker fans. If you look at Dana White's historical discussions of Scott Coker, especially during the pre-Elite XC asset buy, uh, Dana White's incredibly complimentary and congratulatory. To Scott Coker he says we need guys like Scott Coker. We need promotions like Strikeforce. We, you know, this is fantastic for us. Great feeder league. So Scott Coker was someone that ended up in a position to compete with the UFC, but he wasn't someone that necessarily set out with that dream at all. And even if he's in that position now with Bellator, he's called upon because he did a decent job in the past. But ultimately, I don't think that was what he had in mind. But some people, I think now too, it's hard to get in the game and actually have that be your intent. It, it, it is, you would need someone with native knowledge of the industry, overwhelmingly powerful connections, and some kind of great temporal space. That is to say, like a UFC champion holding out or some kind of package of great fighters without a contract or 
you have the inside line on Brock Lesnar or something like that. Unless you have all of that combination, you can't do anything in this landscape. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, we can bag on Bjorn Rebney as a promoter all we want. It's a credit to what some some measure of Bjorn Rebney's success that he was able to get enough money from various hedge fund people, broker the right network tele or the, like TV cable deals along the way to build Bellator into something that Spike and Viacom wanted to invest in. He clearly wasn't the right guy for the job as time went on, and he butted heads with the guys at Viacom and Spike, and they were quick to, or I should say quick to oust him. They wanted to oust him for a while, and then were eventually able to make it happen. But uh, even in someone like Bjorn Rebney, you see how difficult it is, and that was when the UFC was smaller, when Bellator had easier access to talent. You look at some of the stuff, now Bellator's locking up like Aaron Pico, who's a teenager. No, if, if this is a different day and age, Bellator wouldn't have to sign him now. You know, American Kickboxing Academy, they could just trot him out there, get him three, four smaller fights in California, see where he's at. Now, I mean, he's, he's going to have an amateur pro MMA fight. He's a straight wrestler. Might end up going to the Olympics first. And yet he's already a Bellator fighter, so to speak. Mm. Uh, so I, I think it, 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 MMA promotion takes all kinds. And, you know, there's some people that just do what they do for the local entertainment. You know, some people, you know, like Wild Bill's Fight Night still goes on in Atlanta. Yeah. It's just a fight. It's just a fight show at a bar called Wild Bill's. <laughs> Hence, Wild Bill's Fight Night. And people like it. You yeah. Know? Or, for instance, uh, the Tashi Palace, you know. They had the WEC for years. Then Zufa buys the WEC. They start taking it all over the place. They have you know, uh, Palace Fighting Championship and Tachi Palace fights now. People there just love fights. You know, the Tachi tribe, that area in the Central Valley in California, a lot of fighters, strong wrestling background, strong fighting culture. People are into it. It just makes sense to have MMA there. So there's some places that will always regionally respond well. And if you can be a promoter and fill a niche, fantastic. Uh, and there'll be some people who dream for larger. But if you're if you're someone who actually wants to compete with the UFC, uh, there there is there has to be an emphasis on timing. And like right now, in the immediate future, unless you have some kind of ace in your sleeve, a la a Brock Lesnar or something like that, it just is not viable. Like when we talk about you know Zufa at the moment, um, obviously no one questions their hole in the market. I mean, do you think Zufa now consciously, um, you know, Dana White has never been trying saying that we need feeder leagues uh, to get guys up into the UFC. Do you think with the amount of shows now that UFC see their own fight nights as their own farm systems or feeder leagues de facto now? Well, I mean, yes and no. Uh, they, they are in terms of the development of fighters to a large extent. Uh, because if they can identify a guy early who's already very talented, there's no incentive not to get him. But uh, the UFC is still not in the business of sending Joe Silva and Sean Shelby around to pick up zero and zero fighters who pass the eyeball test. You still have to fight somewhere, ultimately. You know, very few people are doing the BJ Penn and debuting in the UFC in spite of how easy it is to get in the UFC now. You still have to prove yourself somewhere. And so shows still have promoted outside of the UFC. I mean, speaking, you mentioned, uh, you know, a lot of the stuff going out, and out you know, under the, the Tachi, um, the Tachi manner. And, you know, obviously WEC has had, uh, you know, its humble beginnings out that way. And I think 
uh, Jeff Sherwood has been probably at nearly every show when we're out there, right? Yeah. Uh, I, I, don't, I don't know if he's missed a WEC that was there, and I know he's never missed a Palace or Tachi fights. Uh, yeah, he, if he missed a WEC, it would have been like maybe like the very first one. Because I know Sherwood's there for like when they, when they start doing the slightly bigger WECs, like four, five, six. Sherwood's at all of those. So if Sherwood missed any of the WEC Tachis, it would have been like one, two, or three. And I think he was probably there for all those two. Man, I think you're going back to an era there that, uh, you know, you know, uh, Jeff Sherwood shows up to the events with other media that, that are covering and, you know, some guy pulls out last minute and they're asking guys from the, the, the audience to jump in and fight that are, that are half drunk, you know. Any uh, super heavyweight or heavyweight fights going to Sherwood was trying to, they try to get Sherwood in there. <laughs> Sherwood, uh, Sherwood just keeps it chill in this red tap-out hat and his camera. <laughs> That's it. Stay right behind the fence. Um, I mean, just to, I suppose to shift gears a bit uh, on the issue of international expansion. Now, USC have talked about, you know, I suppose to much dismay of some of the North American um, fans and media, like, you know, about international expansion. Uh, I mean, when we look at you know international expansion, I mean, what's your you know thoughts on the markets the UFC in the last year or so have focused on like internationally, or do you think there's some, their approach has been misguided that they, they need to go back to certain places more? I mean, they've gone to Brazil a lot. They've you know had some shows in your own country in Canada, and um, do you think there's countries that perhaps they need to tap into more that they, they could they haven't done already on? The problem with tapping into countries is that initial efforts will always be successful. Replicating them is what's difficult. You know, mm -hmm. Australia, they've had good success going back. And clearly, if they're able with the you know, upcoming Australian election, if they're able to get into Melbourne and do a stadium show, fantastic for them. Australia is a market they've identified they can go back to. Brazil, not every show is gangbusters now, but Brazil still works. Brazil has enough. Uh, like The population is so large. They can do different scale events there that help. Brazil, for instance, is a place where they can have a fight night card, you know? Because Brazil, like local Valley 2 events, you have Valley, and granted, you know, prices are UFC prices, but the UFC can still adjust prices for a Brazilian audience, do a fight night card there, and people aren't necessarily like, oh, this is bullshit. We don't get a title fight? This sucks. Like, they're not thinking that in, you know, Horaima, Brazil, or, in, you know, uh, you know, some like Marinyao or some place in the middle of the jungle. They just that's not the mindset. They're just pumped up to, you know, see the UFC and uh see whatever locals fight fight. So Brazil still makes a lot of sense. The United States, uh like with so many events now, the United States, they gotta they gotta think carefully and choose wisely. You know, because they and this kind of goes with Europe too. They ultimately end up doing events because they've gone to certain areas before and they're just like, all right, well, we got to go back. And at this point, with just so many cards, so few people and so few fights that people actually thirst to see at a major level, you're not going to be able to please everyone. That, that's it. You know, accommodating as many cards as the UFC have now with worthwhile main events. Even if worthwhile simply means that they kind of jive with the sensibilities of a regional audience, it's an uphill battle. I mean, it's, it's absolutely crazy. So I think the UFC, I mean, by all means, they should keep trying to find markets that they can go back to and have success in. Brazil and Australia are good ones. But we've seen with, you know, 
how the how the UK has gone with the inability to get kind of the fights that the UK audience feel like they deserve for the most part, with repeated attempts to go back to Germany despite not really having the climate there to do highly successful shows, you know. Uh, by all means, if you can find another Sweden, do it. But even Sweden, you know what I mean? If they go once a year, but at some point in time can't provide a kind of MMA fight card that Sweden wants, mm -hmm. you know, if, if Alexander Gustafsson became UFC light heavyweight champion and, you know, became a big enough draw that he fought in Vegas, like, who knows? Like, well, like what do they do? Does Reza Madani headline the things? Like, there's, there's really, you know, like sometimes it just jives perfectly and you've got the right kind of guy that you can go there, mm -hmm. you know, repeatedly. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't always line up. For instance, you know, on the Irish tip, if Conor McGregor becomes UFC featherweight champion, mm -hmm. yeah, maybe Ireland gets a stadium show once a year to watch Conor McGregor do his thing. Mm -hmm. But if Conor McGregor, you know, if we look like 10 years down the line and Conor McGregor's called it quits, mm -hmm. And for 10, 15 years, Ireland, we're getting all these stadium shows every year. It's not going to be the same. No. It's just not. No, absolutely. I, I mean, obviously, the, the upcoming Sweden show is, is, I think, being viewed, especially by a lot of the European MMA media, as perhaps a, you know, a, a measuring stick, whether Zufa can successfully pull off a, you know, an event that's in a prime time slot, North American-wise, um, locally in a region like that. I mean... They've obviously got all the, the, the local approval that's needed to, to get that event scheduled. But you know, we've talked about it here on, on you know on talkingbroadsmma.com, uh, you know, regarding still the, the I suppose a very pessimistic view on, on them pulling that off in Dublin, especially if they want to do it at like a two AM in the morning main event or a three AM you know, main event locally that do you think the UFC are are seriously considering the Sweden show as a as a as an accurate thermometer of how to gauge whether they can pull this off in other European countries going forward, like these events at North American prime time slots? Well, yes and no. Um, I think if you have a, a person that people are willing to do it for, for instance, I complained that the UFC did the Bisping Rockwell card in Australia at, in the morning of the Saturday mm. in Australia. Why? Their, their response was basically, oh, well, I mean, Australians are used to it. You know, they get, you know, if, you know, big match, we've done it in the past. You know, they're just, they're just used to it. Mm. Bullshit. They're used to it because they're forced to be used to it. Yeah. You know, they, like, these are not people, I mean, granted, they're fans and they'll come out for the UFC anyway and they're excited for it. But Luke Rockhold and Michael Bisping, in spite of being very good middleweights, are not necessarily guys where you're like, dude, I absolutely want to get up at like 5 a.m., get ready, go, you know, drive all the way to, you know, Sydney or Brisbane or Melbourne or wherever the UFC card uh, this time around is. I want to get there and I want to watch fights all morning mm. and then just be exhausted and tired when it ends in the late afternoon. Are Rockhold and Bisping the guys that make them want to do that? Who knows? I would guess no. But historically, whether boxing, MMA, does a British crowd care if they have to stay up to 3 a.m. to watch Ricky Hatton defeat Koshizu? No, absolutely not. Does the Swedish crowd care if they got to stay up till 2, 3 in the morning to watch Alexander Gustafsson beat up Anthony Johnson? 
jury's out. We're going to find out come January 24th. But it really does matter on the individual. Because, I mean, using Gustafson, I would be more liable to say, just based on how the media and the respective countries and the respective personalities treated them, that your average Irish MMA fan is going to be more hyped to stay up for the Conor McGregor Stadium show and go into the wee hours of the next morning than probably a Swedish fan is going to want to rock Alexander Gustafsson. And there's probably going to be more of those Irish folk as well. That would be my guess. Uh, so I think it all depends on the individual involved. So yeah, it's a bit of a thermometer acid test. Let's test out a bigger venue, try to kind of pull out the stops and really make a push. But certain instances are, are always going to accommodate stadium shows in different ways. And you know, if Conor McGregor is able to you know, become champion or something like that, that's a whole different look that could precipitate a stadium show. Or likewise, you know, if Jose Aldo or someone like that continues to reign, a stadium show in Brazil is, you know, it, it makes sense there. So it's again with the UFC, it it depends on what these actual cards look like. Who are the people involved? What are the stakes? How does it connect to a local audience? Because we've seen with the UFC, they can have successes, but it's just not as simple as if you build it, they'll come. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's 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 simply not a case anymore where the UFC brand itself is 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 going to draw people. It's it's the name. I mean. You know, you ask the average Irish person here about the UFC, they may know something about it, but if you ask them about Conor McGregor, they know exactly who you're talking about. Well, fantastic. I mean, I've seen it here. I mean, as a Canadian, just meeting Irish expats and stuff like that, and people that aren't necessarily into boxing or MMA, they find out what I do, and I'm at least uh, have a cursory knowledge of Conor McGregor and are cur- and I'm curious about my thoughts on him and how good I think he can be, which, to me, that is like the boilerplate for an established sportsman. I'm aware of this person. I, I seek your knowledge and context because although I'm interested, I'm not actually that hardcore. I've just seen them in passing or b- bits here and there. That's fantastic. Very few people in MMA have that level of cultural penetration. Conor McGregor does. All the better that he'd be a potential guy they do a stadium show for. But again, it's not just as simple as, oh, we've got Guy X from Country Y. It'll be just like when Conor McGregor went to Ireland. No, it won't. Like one, one, I think one area um, space that you know, I think the hardcore MMA fan is, has always been fascinated with. I spoke to Zach Arnold, um, you know, who contributes with Sherdog there a while back on on the show here is is obviously Japan and obviously the, the greater scheme of things. You know, you talk about the Asian region. You know, one FC are doing the thing over there. The UFC are are you know doing their shows in Macau and Japan. I mean, how do you see the future of the MMA space in in, in Asia? I mean, in terms of do you see either one FC or UFC or neither uh, getting a foothold in uh, substantially in that region? I think. Oh, well, I mean, Asia is it's a big continent. A lot of different places. It depends on where you're talking about. Obviously, the UFC had struggled to make any inroads into mainland China. I know. Mm-hmm. And one challenge beat them there. One FC, like rough, all these promotions. So that's a big part of why they they got rid of you know a lot of their Asian office and made some switch ups there. That seems a bit of a failure for them. They thought that was something they could they could lock up, mm-hmm. and it, it was not it was not the case at all. Uh, they basically hired Mark Fisher from the NBA thinking, oh, this guy had something to do with success. Actually, dude, this is a perfect example going back to what we just talked about. Mark Fisher was hired 
to be the managing director of UFC Asia, basically because he was the NBA's director in Asia when Yao Ming showed up. Mark Fisher obviously had nothing to do with Yao Ming. He didn't make him seven foot five. He didn't make him a double double machine. He didn't make him an all star. He didn't make him Chinese. He didn't make him from a country that has over a billion people. He was just the guy who worked there and had that job when the biggest link between the NBA and China and American basketball in China ever happened. And so he got hired by the UFC as a result of it, and they're shocked they can't break into mainland China. The NBA, I mean, it's still popular in China now. They have people like Kobe Bryant, for instance, that are enormous global celebrities and are still big in China. But Chinese people don't rock to the NBA the way that your average American fan does. It's not like they're playing fantasy ball like, oh, man, how many three-pointers does Aaron Aflalo have? They care about people like Kobe Bryant because they know they're major international sports stars. And otherwise, they're going to care about someone like Yao Ming, who's from China. So all of that to say, uh, the UFC's expansion efforts anywhere, or 1FC's, it's going to depend on who they have, what the markets are, and how that connects. If one or any of those promotions end up with an Olympian or something, like let's say there's a Chinese Olympian coming up in, uh, in Rio. There's a Chinese Olympian coming up, and he's going to ball out at something related to MMA. Maybe it's Taekwondo. Maybe it's Judo. Maybe it's Greco. Maybe it's Freestyle. Whatever. Chinese gold medalist becoming an MMA fighter. What a coup. That's the golden goose. Mm. Now, maybe it doesn't go perfectly, yeah. but I would imagine that's the kind of scenario that puts you on the inside track like no other. But without that, who's, who's to say Maybe a promotion like 1FC can just go to the mainland and with the right combination, with the right connections, make huge headway. But uh, targeting the right kind of guy who has the complexion for the connection, you can never underwrite that in promoting trying to break into markets. And You, know, you mentioned Japan. Mm -hmm. Japan's a, a boom-bust thing by by nature you can look at boxing kickboxing pro wrestling boxing is probably the greatest example because the the historic waxing and waning of interest in boxing in japan really comes and goes but not just japanese boxing champions because in the lighter weight classes you always have at least one of the four well I should say one of the four sanctioning bodies because japan really only respects two of them but mm. at most points you'll have some kind of, of japanese champion in the lower weight classes for the wba or wbc but when there is a champion that people are interested in, someone that people are just culturally invested in for whatever reason, maybe it's fighting Harada historically, who I guess bolstered Japan's sense of superiority and stuff in a guilty post-war time. Maybe it's, geez, you know, someone more recently like the Kometum family where they seem like outsized cartoon characters come to life with their outlandish accents and antics and singing songs before fights. These are people that can do, you know, TV ratings in Japan of like 46%, like get like half the country watching. But in between, the same, you know, like the same weight classes, the same belts on some other guy, they're meaningless. They don't get on network TV. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's a fickle audience. So, uh... You know, maybe, you know, there's like, like with Japan, the hope that people always look at is like an Olympic wrestler, an Olympic judoka coming into MMA and revitalizing it. That's part of why Satoshi Ishii was seen as such an important figure coming into the 2008 Beijing Games. Ultimately, uh, hasn't had an awful MMA career, but hasn't really lived up to the standards and certainly hasn't revitalized Japanese MMA the way that many had hoped. But 
that's always the feel with Japan. If you just get the right guy at the right time, maybe a guy like Antonio Inoki behind him, they mm. can turn him in to regenerate a whole other kind of buzz. Or hell, maybe some kind of celebrity crosses over. You get someone like Bob Sapp who becomes a, a fighter slash celebrity and generates public interest. These things happen in Japan. It's just a question of when. For the UFC's purposes, though, it's hard to target, I mean, other than getting a Japanese champion, there's not a whole lot they can do. The UFC are going to be taking, like, variety show performers and trying to turn them in anything, or probably are going to be signing an Olympic, uh, an Olympic convert right out of the Olympics either. So... When it comes to Japan and a lot of Asian markets, the UFC, ha the UFC so far has tried to target the best talent. But that's how you end up with Jumbeki Tuershin and, you know, uh, you know t talent of this nature. Mm. It's just they're not, they're not high-level guys. The most accomplished natives at this point in time, the MMA scenes just aren't that developed. So... Unless your product resounds in some particular way and people just get into it and you tap the right market, uh, you have to rely on some kind of weird Trojan horse figure, whether it's an Olympian, a celebrity, whatever. And unless you can find that person, it, you're just, you're just going to be pounding away, hoping to strike gold at some point in time. So it's not just as Dana White often puts if everybody gets fighting. It's more. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, and some people get it differently, obviously. You know, there's some places where you go and, like, boxing is part of the establishment, like Germany, and mm. the appetite for MMA isn't quite so so obvious or apparent. But then you go somewhere like Australia, where mm. boxing reigns supreme, mm. and there's no wrestling culture, really. Mm. You know, there's some judo culture, but certainly not wrestling, really. And yet, MMA, very popular locally all over the country, and mm. they do a decent job despite... Uh, it's still being banned in places at turning out talent. Kudos mm. to Australia. And uh, this is also a place where they have a, a strong kickboxing culture. So uh, France has a rich history in all kinds of traditional martial arts. Tradition in boxing. Tradition in kickboxing. Proper Muay Thai. Not even European kickboxing. Arguably the best proper Muay Thai nation uh, is France over even Holland when it comes to you know the actual Thai style, mm. uh, judo, wrestling, immense amounts of talent, and yet you can't ground and pound to the head and have a real MMA fight in France, mm. and the sports generally shit upon. So you can never necessarily put your finger uh, completely on the pulse and just be like, oh, these people are going to love MMA. First of all, I just want to say. Uh Thank you for, for all your time. You've been very gracious with us today. Uh, but before we, uh, I suppose, you know, look to wrap things up, um, you know, obviously a couple of other areas that, you know, there are some regional shows in, but, you know, we've, you know, you know seen the, a lack of, uh, you know, interest from the UFC's point of view. I mean, you know, one region I think of is, you know, the continent of Africa, specifically South Africa. The, you know, the main promotion down there is EFC. Um, EFC has had you know challenges and poor runnings of, of things and whatnot. Do you see any uh, potential for you know foothold a foothold uh, gotten by the UFC in that market? I think South Africa would be a place where they could go, but it would be again like an annual thing. Like you could mm -hmm. do a current in South Africa, mm -hmm. and uh, there's enough of a developed economy there and enough of sporting culture that you definitely get the people out. But it's a question of what kind of card caliber can you deliver there, and like 
is it, is it going to be anything more than a fight pass card ever? Mm. Probably not without some kind of South African star, which mm. doesn't look like it's going to happen anytime soon. So they could do a card there and draw. It just becomes one of those questions that if they go back year after year after year after year with the same quality and caliber of card, is it going to resound still? Are people still going to buy tickets? Mm. My guess, at least based on history, would be no. Yeah. I mean, just, I suppose just to close things out, I'd, I'd just be interested in hearing it just back, just briefly back to the North American scene. I mean, with Bellator's recent show, the Bellator 121, you know, with a, a clear different direction, a different tone apparent uh, under the Scott Coker administration here. I mean, what, how do you see Bellator uh, functioning in, in the MMA space in North America going forward? Do you see them becoming any viable um, comp a viable number two from a competitor point of view? Um, or, you know, is it that they're just going to have their own kind of alternative that people will watch um, what they bring like to the table with these, you know, K1-style MMA matchups and things of that nature? Well, I think they show with the Bonner Tito card that they can put some splashy names out there and still get people to pay attention. This yeah. has to be respected. They are the number two MMA company by a long shot. World Series of Fighting, 1FC, they're still not close. But what, Actually, I, would put, I would put 1FC ahead of World Series of Fighting in terms of being a competent, credible MMA promotion at this point in time, but that's a whole other conversation. Uh, but they still can't compete on a holistic basis with the UFC on talent. They have a smaller roster, and uh, are not equipped to be you know, throwing bazillions and bazillions of dollars at a whole variety of fighters. Mm -hmm. However, in the interim, Scott Coker just has to focus on delivering solid ratings. Mm -hmm. Basically, now Bellator have one card every single month, every four or six weeks, and they have another card every season, mm -hmm. their tentpole event, so every four months. So every, every quarter for Bellator, you theoretically get four cards, adding up to 16 on the year, 12 regular cards, four big ones. If they go forward with that model and are able to keep ratings, you know, in the neighborhood of, say, 800 to a million viewers average, I mean, Scott Coker could very well just get his budget doubled by Viacom. Mm -hmm. At this point in time, Scott Coker's incentives from corporate are just to, to bring up and stabilize Bellator's ratings. And that's very achievable because Scott Coker is a clever promoter. He is someone that gets how to draw people in and think, above all else, yeah, I'm going to turn on the TV for that. And with just you know a, a card every month, and obviously on the odd month, uh, you'll have a super card or whatever. But the super cards aside... Uh, they're, they're one a month format. That's way better than working every single week as Bellator often did. It allows you to actually promote a car in an individual area. Uh, and, and everything, everything has helped. It means you can actually draw a local audience, which is good for live revenue, mm. but it's also good because you want, dude, no one wants to watch a sporting event on TV that looks like shit. And, and Bellator, there have been some cosmetic changes that Coker has made immediately that I think have helped getting rid of the gray mat. Uh, the Bellator uh, 131 car for Bonner and Tito obviously showed off a lot of new production bells and whistles with the ramp, which drew rave reviews. People unanimously seem very production. But it's also notable to think that going forward, Bellator won't necessarily have to run at small casinos with 500 to 1,500 people there. 
they can actually spend four to six weeks promoting an event in an area, sell tickets, be in an arena, like a basketball arena, mm. and sell tickets and draw you into the live experience watching. Mm. You know, I always uh, laugh. Sherdog contributor Jesse Denny always quips that he saw one of the best fights ever live in front of 300 people, having watched Michael Chandler, Eddie Alvarez won at the Seminole Hard Rock in Hollywood, Florida, in front of, yeah, hundreds of people. Hmm. It's a shame. But, like, these things are a very they, – they play in when you're watching an event on TV, when you're uh, deciding whether or not this is a good sporting experience. If you see a good fight but there's a huge crowd around it, 15,000 people or, you know, even 10,000 people getting hype, over 1,500 or 1,000, uh, it, it, it does measure in, I think, to your enjoyment intangibly or tangibly. And all of these things stack up. Plus – if if people fall in line, obviously, if Coker is able to do a higher number, if Viacom give them a bigger budget, that's the point at which they can be more competitive for free agents when contracts are up with the UFC. And they can identify fighters that they can do things with, like the Diaz brothers or try to snag a champion and make a splash. That's stuff that becomes more viable, more realistic, and simply Coker can get their numbers up. And I think that is a very accomplishable uh Task. I wouldn't necessarily say it's easy, but I think you already see the kind of matchups they're putting together, the kind of guys that Coker's courting, the fact that they're doing matchups like Douglas Lima taking on Paul Daly. Mm. I think they will be able to ultimately uh, get in that area. And if Coker can get more money from Viacom and get them more serious about the product, then I mean, plain and simple, Bellator can more seriously compete for big money fighters. They can't have all of them. They're never going to be able to like you know just swoop up a bunch of UFC champions all at one time. Mm. But if he can get the blessing of Viacom and go after a champion, or even just some notable fighters who draw that he's got a history with, like the Diaz brothers, it could be a potential success. So, uh, do you think uh, post you know March April, you know WrestleMania rolls around, and obviously the Lesnar talks. Uh, you know, spark up again. Do you think Bellator is in the business of looking to try and snag someone like that? Well, I think if you're Scott Coker, you got to be. Because if you're, if you're Bellator, you can go with a Brock Lesnar-related deal that no one else can. The UFC, the, or, or at the bare minimum, they would force the UFC to adjust their plan. You know what I mean? The UFC can offer a greater dollar amount but Bellator can do just about anything they damn well want with Brock Lesnar. You know, uh, if Brock Lesnar comes into the UFC, how is it going to play? Because people can say, oh, like it's Brock Lesnar. They can put him against anyone that's going to draw. Yeah, it'll draw. Mm. But the UFC still have many masters. And media and hardcore fans are still among those masters. Mm. They still factor in. The UFC can't just go do Brock Lesnar against Stefan Struve. Like Brock Lesnar against Sean Jordan. They can't. Mm. People would laugh and pillory and skewer them instantaneously, even though Brock Lesnar would probably draw quite well on pay-per-view in one of those lame dummy matchups. Bellator, on the other hand, they have a bunch of money to do less fights, probably have some say in his opponents, and, and really give them kind of the keys to the kingdom. They can be more flexible. And this in the past, to an extent, it got Scott Coker in trouble with Strike Force because he created a bunch of weird contracts and did, did, a lot of, did a lot of bending over backwards for certain guys and 
ending up in situations where people would say, well, this fighter got this amount was probably this. So Scott Coker is infamous for that, but one reason, what one, one good aspect of that mm. is that Coker was able to snag a lot of fighters that wanted to march to the beat of their own drum. Coker was like the cool stepdad that wanted to let you get away with anything just so you'd call him dad, let <laughs> you love him. And so that's how he ended up with guys like Fedor Milianenko and Alistair Overeem. Mm. Coker's a political guy. Like, he will play ball. Mm. So if Brock Lesnar thinks, I want to do MMA again, but, I, I, dude, I can't fight for a UFC title. Maybe I can only fight once a year. They'll probably acquiesce to just about anything that he wants. The UFC will have probably a bigger straight dollar figure, inevitably, just like the Fedor deal. Mm. But there's a flexibility that the, the second banana promoter is always going to give you because they have to try to make those splashes. They have to try to be mm. flexible on those capacities. Yeah. Sometimes it gets you into a bit of trouble, as it did ultimately in the nine days of strike force, but those were smartly calculated gambles. If you, you know, if you if you want to try to win the pot, you gotta bet big sometimes. And uh, Coker's been willing to do it in the past. A guy like Lesnar would be the perfect kind of uh, prize to bet big on. So what you're saying is you you have to be ready sometimes to do deals with crazy Russians. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like you, you have to be willing to play ball to get certain kinds of people on your side mm. in mixed martial arts. You know, like I think if you went to Nick Diaz now and honestly said, "Who's your favorite promoter to work for ever?" I bet he'd still say Scott Coker. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure he would. I don't think he's going to mince his words. Uh, okay. Yeah. Or, uh, or hell, uh, going back or keeping it more regional, Paul Daly's about to fight for Scott Coker again. Now, under under Scott Coker employ. Paul Daly put on one of the most exciting five-minute periods in the history of mixed martial arts, one of the greatest rounds ever yeah, against Nick Diaz. Amazing fight. Absolutely sensational. And had some other you know, doozy knockouts as well. Mm. At the same time, Paul Daly is an unprofessional malcontent who's about 50-50 to miss weight, sucker punching Josh Koscheck, just not a swell guy. But Scott Coker understands that he brings a certain something to the cage that is a perfect foil for Douglas Lima, just like it was for Nick Diaz back in Strikeforce, and mm. so they use it. Yeah. You know, Scott Coker is not afraid to dig into the Misfits toy box. This is the man that brought you Nick Diaz and Jason Miller and all of the rest. Yeah. You know? uh, so if, if there's someone out there who's got mm. the right kind of personality, that extra kind of magnetic attraction, Coker's going to be there in a flash. No, I, I, could, I couldn't agree more. Um, Jordan, um, thanks very much for, for joining us today. Is there anything you'd like to, to plug out there, get your Twitter out there, um, you know, plug on anything? Yeah, Sherlock.com. It's the greatest mixed martial arts website in the world. Holding you down since GeoCities back in the day. Sherdog's NHB website, Sherdog.com. Also, follow me on Twitter, at Jordan Breed. Listen to the cheap seats on the Sherdog Radio Network and iTunes and all that jazz Tuesdays, 3 to 5 Eastern Time. Also, if you're blessed with a satellite radio subscription, Sirius XM, the cheap seats powered by Sherdog.com on Sports Zone Channel 92, 4 to 6 Eastern Time on Wednesdays. And obviously, check out Press Row. I'd, I'd, I'd recommend that also. Yes, Wednesdays on the Sherdog.com blog. Well, Jordan, thanks very much for. for for jumping on. Appreciate perspective and uh, hopefully we'll catch up again soon. Absolutely, whenever you want me. Thanks so much. Yeah, we had the mastermind himself, Jordan Breen from Sherlock.com. Great to have him on. Such um, 
uh, a walk encyclopedia of mixed martial arts, not just UFC related, but worldwide related. And great to have him on. Uh, definitely got a lot of insight from him. And um, remember to uh, keep um, checking out our podcast. Um, if you missed it last week, we had Little Evil Jens Pulver, the inaugural UFC 155-pound champion. Very in-depth interview, you know, going over his career and um, really good to have him on. But make sure you stay in touch uh, via via the Twitter. Uh, you can reach me at Joe Riley sixteen eighty nine. Of course, don't forget our at Talking Brawls Twitter handle for everything Talking Brawls podcast related, including obviously our main flagship podcast with Noel McGrath, and obviously about off the brawl as well for updates on that. Uh, check us out on that handle on Twitter, and obviously don't forget the main Twitter of the website at tbmma.com. And of course, log in directly. Uh, at talkingbrawlsmma.com there to find out all the latest happenings on the website yeah so that's been another podcast in the books we really appreciate you listening in uh, keep in touch and uh, we hope that you keep listening to the show appreciate all your feedback um, hopefully we'll get it out on Twitter um, there who will have lined up in the next few weeks but um, keep in touch and thanks very much for tuning in real